Welcome to Navigating the New Normal, Grant Thornton's podcast exploring trends in business and the marketplace. I'm Rebecca Archer, and today I'm excited to bring you another federal budget edition of our series. Today we'll hear from ABC journalist Karina Cavallo, Chief Economist Bessa Deda, and Grant Thornton partner Paul Gooley at our virtual seminar as they discuss Labor's budget spending and if Australian businesses will continue to feel the pinch or whether we can bypass a recession. So what was announced in the budget and how will spending allocations alleviate or build pressure for Australian businesses? Hello and welcome to this federal budget event hosted by Grant Thornton, where you'll hear from experts about what budget 2023 means for you and your business. I'm Karina Cavallo. I'll be your host for this session. I want to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which you all work today and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people participating in this seminar. Now, we will have time for audience questions later in the session, but feel free to add your questions in as we go. You can submit questions via the Q&A panel on your screen. If your question doesn't get asked during this seminar, we will get back to you via email. You'll also find this webinar platform allows you to customise your screen. So feel free to move or change the size of any of the windows you see in front of you. As I said, I'm Karina Cavallo, a presenter with ABC News for the last 15 years, so I've hosted my fair share of post-budget events. I'd like to introduce our panel to you. Bessa Dita is the Chief Economist of St George Bank, Westpac Business Bank, Bank of Melbourne, Bank SA and BT, businesses within the Westpac Group. Bessa was appointed the Chief Economist of St George Bank in 2008 a role which saw her become the first female chief economist of a bank in Australia. Bessa was subsequently appointed as a chief economist with Westpac Group in 2009 and is a key spokesperson on the economy and financial markets, managing a team of economists. Bessa, welcome. Paul Gooley leads Grant Thornton's national corporate finance practice and is head of the financial advisory team in Sydney, specialising in advising clients on mergers and acquisition, fundraising and divestment across a range of industries and markets. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So we will hear from Paul and Bessa shortly, but let's take a closer look at Treasurer Jim Chalmers' second budget. Up until this weekend, very few people thought it would deliver a surplus, but here we are, the first budget surplus in 15 years. And while it's small at $4 billion, it's an achievement previous governments have promised and not delivered. Jim Chalmers is the first Labor Treasurer to announce a budget surplus since Paul Keating in 1989, so what does it mean and will it last? The government has had to perform a delicate balancing act of providing cost of living relief to those doing it tough, while not adding to inflation, which remains stubbornly high. The second Chalmers budget is more ambitious than his first mini budget in October, which took a traditional softly, softly approach and had few surprises in it. The Treasurer's surplus has been achieved by a commodities windfall, but also increased tax revenue thanks to a strong labour market and record low unemployment. Jim Chalmers and his finance minister Katie Gallagher have also pointed to $17.8 billion in savings and reprioritisations 
So that's taking money from one department like Defence and spending it somewhere else. They did this in October too, with savings worth $22 billion. The government says debt will be almost $300 billion lower by the end of the medium term, saving some $83 billion in interest costs between now and 2035. But the interest bill is still $60 million a day. It's one of the fastest growing pressures on the budget and costs more than the family tax benefit, childcare or infrastructure. So a surplus this year, but a structural deficit and rising debt to linger for years to come. It's hard to ignore some of the social spending in this budget. After rejecting calls for job seeker to be increased substantially across the board, which was a measure recommended by the government's own hand-picked expert committee, the Treasurer hinted at an increase for those over 55 to address the growing cohort of women who find themselves unemployed at that age. But we saw last night an overall increase in JobSeeker by $40 a fortnight, which is less than the $50 a fortnight the Morrison government announced in 2021. Oh, and the higher rate for older people will kick in at the age of 55 rather than 60. Beyond that is the single parent payment being lifted to age 14, energy relief of $500 for more than 5 million households on government payments, a rise in rent assistance of 15% and tripling GP incentives for bulk billing in a cost of living relief package worth $14.6 billion. Aged care workers will receive a 15% pay rise in a bid to attract and retain staff in the growing sector, while the government has a trickier job of trying to rein in spending from the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which will cost state and federal governments $40 billion next financial year and is projected to grow more than 10% over the next decade. The government has stated the current growth of the scheme is not sustainable and will implement a growth target of 8% in the coming years. But besides the government's interest bill on debt, the NDIS remains the fastest growing expenditure item in the budget. The Treasurer says the spending in his budget is modest but meaningful and the government wasn't more generous in areas like JobSeeker simply because it can't afford it. So where is the money coming from? Well, apart from the savings and reprioritizations, we can thank migration and record low unemployment. While you might have thought the RBA lifting the cash rate by 375 basis points in one year would have an impact on the workforce, it hasn't. Well, not yet anyway. High migration has helped business meet the skills shortage left by COVID border closures and added to government coffers in the form of income tax revenue. But the rate of arrivals has also put immense strain on housing supply in Australia's biggest cities of Sydney and Melbourne. Rents have exploded, adding to inflation. While the forecast drop in house prices has failed to materialise, migration poses both an opportunity and a challenge for the government. Then there is capitalising on the surge in commodity prices. The government wants to change the petroleum resource rent tax, a levy on Australia's offshore oil and gas projects, which don't pay royalties and can avoid paying the tax entirely by deducting their capital costs from 100% of their project income. Under the proposal, gas companies would only be able to claim against 90% of their income, allowing the government to bring in an additional $2.4 billion over the next four years. Is it too much or too little? Well, that depends on who you ask, but the industry itself is supportive of the change. 
One of the other lingering questions from the budget is what the government will do with the already legislated Stage 3 tax cuts introduced by the previous government and supported by this one. You won't find the numbers in the budget papers, but they return $69 billion over four years to workers, the majority of which to those on six-figure salaries. But as economic conditions become more challenging, can Australia afford tax cuts for those on higher incomes set to come into effect on July 1 next year? Well, at that point, it's probably good to bring in Bessa Dita, the Chief Economist at St George Bank. Bessa, how significant is this surplus? Well, I think if we go back to the gloomy days of 2021, back then we were anticipating, or the government was anticipating, a deficit of nearly $100 billion for 22-23. We've seen a very sharp turnaround. Yes, it's wafer thin, but it's a surplus and the first surplus in 15 years and really set up I guess, um, more resilience for the budget's bottom line um, and then resilience to any possible future shocks and also enabled, I think, the government to deliver on helping households that are more vulnerable and need help from the high cost of living expenses. Yeah, the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, was keen to play down the commodities windfall element and instead highlight the strong labour market and higher wages growth. Is that accurate? Well, I think it's a combination of factors that have really helped deliver that surplus. It is the lower than anticipated unemployment rate. We've got a very low unemployment rate by historical standards of 3.5%. It is the fact that we've got a very sharp recovery in net overseas migration uh, and migrants uh, don't access social welfare payments, uh, but they do pay income tax, which helps deliver um, revenue um, increases to the government. Uh, commodity prices is part of the story. The estimates were quite conservative um, and that's been a trend over recent years and therefore setting up a bit of a hollow log uh, situation if you do have higher commodity prices. Uh, and then, of course, you've got higher wages growth and you put that all together and you've got a stronger nominal economy delivering higher tax revenues that helps the government improve its bottom line and that's exactly what's happened. So the big question that a lot of economists are asking or trying to answer rather the morning after the budget is whether these spending commitments are going to be inflationary or not. That is the $64 question. But of course, it's it's always going to be a very tough budget for Jim Chalmers in terms of the way he frames it. On the one hand, uh, he did need to help uh, those households that are vulnerable and really suffering from higher cost of living. Uh, but then on the other hand, he really had to be very careful and targeted with that spending because he doesn't want to be in a situation where you're stoking inflationary pressures and possibly increasing the risk of rate rises from the RBA. Um, so very difficult and challenging for the government um, to frame and balance those two challenges. Now, they did deliver on $20 billion of spending, $12 billion in 2023-24. Um, that is quite significant. Uh, and really, you can't have a situation where there's more spending, uh, even though you can't begrudge that spending going to vulnerable households, uh, and a situation where there's downward pressure on inflation. The two are quite incompatible. Um, so it does, I guess, raise the risk of extra household spending um, or spending growth um, being fostered. And therefore, uh, it also does potentially foster greater inflationary pressures and could mean that rate 
rates have to rise again. But whether the Reserve Bank delivers another rate rise won't come down to just the federal budget. It will come down to a range of factors. Um, they're focusing very closely on incoming data, both domestically and offshore, and it'll be collectively what sort of picture does that paint in terms of inflation going forward. I do want to come to the RBA response in a moment, but if we stick with um, some of those spending elements in the budget, the Treasurer was adamant that the budget will not add to inflation, saying that the energy relief in particular will help, as well as the lower than expected power price rises. But if you have something like 5 million households with an extra $500 in their pockets, is that not going to add to demand? It will contribute to uh, demand. Uh, that's right, Karina. Uh, if if you've uh, got extra money in your hip pocket, um, particularly low-income households that have a greater propensity, um, I guess, to, 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 spend, to spend that money rather than, than save, uh, that will foster um, an increase in demand and that could mean stronger economic activity than otherwise would be the case and it could mean stronger inflationary pressures. Talk to us about the intersection of fiscal and monetary policy here. Is this budget going to help or hinder the Reserve Bank to get inflation back to that 2 to 3% band? Look, uh, the Reserve Bank doesn't expect inflation to move back to that band until the middle of 2025, and that's broadly consistent with what the government has printed last night in terms of when inflation returns to target. Uh, inflation is elevated, but it's... Isn't it, it earlier in the federal government's budget? Isn't it June 2024? It's about 3.25%. Yes, the, well, 3.25% is still just a mm. bit above the target band. Uh, but uh, I guess the point is that uh, inflation remains quite elevated, still well above the inflation target band of the RBAs, which is 2 to 3%. Inflation did peak in, well, we think it peaked in the last quarter of last year, and it is moderating. But there's still uh, a way to go. Uh, there's still risk around those inflation forecasts. Uh, and therefore, even though our view is that the Reserve Bank won't be raising rates further in this cycle, you can't fully rule out that another rate hike might not be in the wings. Uh, there's certainly signs that household spending growth is slowing. Uh, population growth is helping keep household spending more resilient than otherwise would be the case, uh, particularly when we just uh, household spending per capita, we can, we can see evidence of that. Uh, there is a slowing underway, but um, there is that challenge of bringing inflation back into the band. Uh, I liken it to the fact that my seven-year-old squeezed toothpaste out of the tube. Once it's out of the tube, it's pretty hard to get it back in. And that's, that's the tricky challenge for uh, the Reserve Bank. Yeah. What are some of the other factors that you said it will be considering when it looks at raising interest rates? Uh, the Reserve Bank uh, will consider obviously household spending growth. That is the engine room of the economy. Uh, we are seeing signs of a slowdown uh, in that space. Uh, they will look at uh, the strength of the labour market. Uh, now, unemployment reigns incredibly low at 3.5%, but there are signs that unemployment uh, will start to rise, particularly if we look at forward-looking indicators. There's more applicants per, per vacancies. Um, job ads are starting to come down. So there are some signs that unemployment is starting to lift, uh, but that obviously 
feeds into wages growth, which feeds into the inflation story. They'll be looking at inflation expectations. The Reserve Bank is very keen to ensure that inflation expectations don't de-anchor because then it will make its job a lot harder of bringing down inflation. Uh, It will also look at global factors, what other major central banks around the world are doing. Uh, That can have an influence on our currency. Our currency then impacts the prices of imported goods and services, but also um, how uh, our businesses compete uh, in Australia. Um, so there's a wide range of factors that the RBA will really be looking at. Um, on balance, we think they're done, but like I said, uh, we can't rule out another rate hike. Um, I think at the margin, uh, this does um, increase inflationary pressures or this budget does increase inflationary pressures, but it's got to be considered against a whole um, wide range of factors. The other point to just keep in mind is that there is a high share of uh, housing loans uh, that are at fixed rates uh, that are due to expire this year. In fact, there's 880,000 of them and they will be expiring onto a high variable mortgage rate, which will have an impact on household spending growth. Um, And then you've also got that situation where rents are also growing quite rapidly uh, and that's partly also due to the fact that population growth uh, is recovering very rapidly and there's a shortage of housing and not much in the pipeline coming forward given that uh, building approvals uh, are well off their peaks. And even in the government's own forecast last night, dwelling investment is set to decline for three straight years. So the challenges around housing are only set to grow. Yeah, how is migration playing into the budget bottom line? So I I think of it in terms of the good, the bad and the ugly. So the good is that net net international migration has really provided an injection of labour supply that was desperately needed by businesses in Australia. Uh, You you know, unemployment is still well below uh, the rate of unemployment that's consistent with full employment. There's still skilled shortages, but that recovery in population growth and that recovery that's in net overseas migration is helping address those stresses in the labour market that also have been contributing um, to wage increases in um, certain industries and you know more more broadly in some 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 other some other pockets. Um, you, you know the the bad is that these people need somewhere to live. Uh, they need to buy goods and services. Uh, they need to you know, fill out their homes with green goods, white goods. And so it does does make economic activity more resilient than otherwise would be the case in an environment where uh, the central bank is trying to slow economic activity in order to try and bring inflation back down to the target ban. And the ugly bit, I guess, is the fact that we do have a shortage of housing um, Australia-wide and in some parts of Australia it's quite acute. Uh, If we have a look at approvals to build those dwellings, um, 46% of the recent peak. Uh, Builders and developers still have elevated material costs. They've still got elevated labour costs. Um, Some of these builders and developers um, have gone bankrupt. Uh, So, you know, there's not a lot of projects in the pipeline that will add to that supply very quickly. And so in an environment where you've got net um, international migration ramping up very rapidly, and a shortage of housing, then that's really a recipe for some price responses. And so we have seen dwelling prices stabilise around the bottom. Um, they don't appear to continue to be declining. And in fact, we might even get a very 
modest upturn before rate cuts commence, uh, which is which is unusual. And we're seeing very strong rental growth. So 10% last year, we think it'll be another 12% per annum uh, nationally this year. Now, the budget papers really stood out, I think, in terms of their numbers for net overseas migration. Uh, for 2022-23, uh, that's 400,000. And that's a significant upgrade from 265,000 um, for the current financial year uh, that was forecast in just October of last year. And then if we have a look at the numbers going forward, they're also very elevated. You've got 315,000 for next financial year and then 260,000 uh, for the next few, few years. So very strong levels of net overseas migration are expected to be maintained. So is there anything beyond rent assistance in the budget to address housing supply and affordability? Look, there are some measures. Um, the rent to build incentives was certainly a step in the right direction. Uh, there's also giving capital to the National uh, um, Housing and Finance Investment Corporation. That's another step in the right direction. Uh, but in terms of big measures to address the challenges that we face in housing in, in the near term, um, you know, there, there wasn't uh, a significant amount there and it is really difficult to address those challenges in the short term. Uh, it takes time to address housing supply uh, and it's, um, you know, it has many elements to it. Um, another one of the big spending areas is the NDIS. Uh, the government will outlay $733 million on eight measures designed to improve decision-making at the NDIA, which is the agency that administers the scheme. Could the government have revealed more detail about how it intends to make the scheme more sustainable? I understand that there's a review that's scheduled to come out in October. Yeah, the, the detail around the NDIS cap of 8% being introduced from 2026 was pretty light on the detail. NDIS is the fastest growing expenditure area for the government. Um, it's certainly a big issue um, over the longer term and in, in terms of also addressing um, structural budget issues um, for the government. Um, so it would be good to see more detail on that front, uh, particularly given the challenges the government will have around NDIS and also growing pressures from you know, the, the ageing of the population uh, and, and aged care more generally. Um, the economist John Quiggan, a professor at the University of Queensland, wants the axing of the stage three tax cuts taken to the next election. His argument is the opposition is weak at the moment and having the tax cut for only a year would make its impact on public debt negligible. What do you think about that? Well, the good thing about public debt is that it is now peaking earlier and lower um, and, you know, the improvement in the budget bottom line has also delivered, um, I guess, an improvement in the government's balance sheet. Uh, you know, my opinion is that Australia as a nation depends too heavily on income tax. Uh, we really should uh, have that mix changing to greater towards consumption taxes. Um, in fact, um, you know, Australia, uh, in terms of its income tax, does, uh, you know, start at a very low multiple uh, compared to um, our OECD countries uh, elsewhere around the world. Uh, so I wouldn't be in favour of scrapping it because I think you do need to see a change in the composition. Um, to address bracket creep? 
well, just to have a greater reliance on consumption tax and away from income tax. Um, otherwise, our younger generation uh, will be moving offshore um, to earn better um, salaries, um, to pay less tax. We, will, we could have a bit of a brain drain uh, happening. Uh, I guess, you know, absent from the conversation this time was the fact that um, we should look at lifting the goods and services tax and expanding that to uh, include all goods and services and and then compensating low-income households for um, that expansion of tax across goods and services. But that's not a popular uh, measure and, and therefore it's been ab absent. But um, that certainly would help the bottom line and I think you would get a better shift in the composition of where the tax revenues are coming from. The GST, of course, is a consumption tax. Um, do you think it's an unpopular move to lift it, even though that's the whole idea of a consumption tax, is it can act as a lever in times of economic hardship or in the good times you can raise it up or down? Um, is it politically unpopular for governments to tinker with the GST yeah, and so I, therefore they just don't do it? Absolutely. It is um, very difficult politically. Um, we, we may all remember John Hewson and the birthday cake um, when they first wanted to introduce the GST. Um, and that, you know, that contributed to um, uh, his loss at the election polls. It, it is very difficult. Um, and uh, I guess generally speaking, there's a lot of challenges facing the government in terms of reform that's required to lift productivity, um, to improve our living standards over the longer term, to address structural budget pressures that will come, particularly from um, the growing bill that will be NDIS. Uh, and uh, also uh, relying too heavily on income tax. Could the changes have gone further? Could the government have been more ambitious in other areas like capital gains tax or trusts? Certainly, um, I, I think there's always an argument that um, the government could have done more on reform. Uh, I don't think this is a reforming uh, budget, uh, but nor have we seen a reforming budget in a very long time. And I think that comes back to the fact that it is politically very difficult um, to frame that to the Australian public. Okay, well, Bessa, thank you so much for that overview. I want to bring in Paul Gooley now from Grant Thornton. What were your overall impressions of the budget? Does the surplus have any importance in your view? Yes, Greener. I think overall impressions it was a cautious budget. Predictable, I guess, given the inflationary conditions we're in, but quite cautious. I think pleasingly they have returned most of the revenue, the additional revenue through strong employment, commodities, back to the budget. It would have been disappointing if, if they'd spent more than that and add to inflation, but overall quite cautious. From a surplus perspective, clearly it's it's a positive. As as Besser mentioned, it enabled the government to be able to spend the twenty billion dollars or um, over the next few years on low income owners uh, earners to to compensate for inflationary pressure. So that's a positive. But I think long term, and most people are already turning to the structural issue with the budget. So the surplus doesn't really address that. And as Besser mentioned. I think tax reform is something that is very difficult and given we've gone through a pandemic and now we're into inflation, very difficult to, to do, but clearly something that is fundamental. Um, and unsurprisingly, though, we are going the next, if you think where the next budget's coming, it's going to be closer to an election cycle. And so I'm not optimistic that we will get tax reform, but clearly tax reform is going to be required to, to reduce the structural deficit. So you agree with Bessa this was not a reform budget? No, I think it was, um, as I said, 
definitely not a reform budget. I think it was cautious. Um, again, it, it is a tightrope that, that the Treasurer is running. So he can't add to inflation um, and, and increase interest rates, but clearly he's got constituents that are, that are struggling from cost of living. So I think it's probably the right balance right at the moment. If you think um, a lot of the, and as Bessa mentioned, a lot of the numbers are quite good. So conditions aren't as bad as we expected them to be. So um, you know, globally, Australia is doing extremely well, um, but it was cautious. And I think it was it was a budget for the time. Uh, clearly, the next budget is is much more important from a reform perspective. But as I said, given election cycles, uh, I'm not optimistic on that front. The Macquarie Chief Executive last week said migration and natural resources will continue to bolster the economy. Do we know for how long? Well, I think on the migration front, um, as Besh has mentioned, there's some big numbers there, um, particularly you know 650 plus over the next two years. So that's going to add a lot of um, of, of tax revenue, clearly, and 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 um, and demand, consumer demand, which which I guess will assist businesses, particularly those facing the consumer. Uh, longer term, on the natural resources side. If you think about where we are, I mean, there were some some alarming or alarming difficult difficult numbers from China overnight in terms of um, their their current activity levels in April, um, which the market has seemed to have um, well forgotten pretty quickly. They've focused more on the U.S. debt ceiling, uh, but. Um, if you look forward, we are potentially coming into a bit of a super cycle on, on commodities. We've got energy transition, which is causing more demand for coal and gas globally as, as people transition away and require uh, they're closing their, their, their uh, coal and gas fields and therefore they need um, yeah, more, more supply. Um, but also if you look forward, the critical minerals that support the change to the change to renewables and the electrification of the of the economies, um, there's some significant demand for critical minerals and, and like core minerals. Lithium. Yes, correct. So and yeah, that's why you've seen big spikes in that. So Australia's very well placed. Even iron ore, um, if you think about it, it's a crucial min- mineral for steel and steel is a crucial um, input to all of the renewable projects. So I think long term and as 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 Macquarie are mentioning, there is a bit of a cycle that will continue for some time. Obviously, we've got US and European recessionary fears and and likely to go into recession, so that could play against that. But long term, I think Australia's in a very lucky position, I guess, isn't it? We have the core minerals that will be required to transition the economies. Yeah, the government is looking to increase revenue from the petroleum resource rent tax by $2.4 billion over four years. This is for an industry that's worth something like $90 billion a year. Does it go far enough? Uh, many commentators are saying not. I think the industry supporting it probably suggests that's the case. Um, I, I think you have to look at this on, there's two sides to this equation. So clearly they could have gone a little bit harder um, uh, in terms of those measures. But you also need to factor in that gas is going to be our transition fuel. So you've got to be very careful. The ACCC has come out and said we are potentially looking at shortages. And if that occurs, it's going to have significant you know, detrimental effects to, to productivity and, and the economy. Um, so you've got to be very careful that the 12 gigajoule cap is also something that's very important. And I know the government is looking at potentially winding back and providing some exceptions around that. So I think from a, from a global, uh, from an economy perspective, we wouldn't want to see anything that really turns off supply and turns off investment in gas. At the same time, um, these are resources of, the, of, our, of our country. They are required to pay for NDIS, to pay for education, et cetera. And so I think it's, it, it is reasonable that we do um, achieve further profits from those super profits um, to the economy. So um, was it the right number? I think it was probably a balancing act and, and trying to alleviate concerns of supply constraints. The West Australian has called it a tax on West Aussies. It blasted that across its mm. front page on Monday, is it? 
it's like hospitals for Queenslanders. Um, uh, I think uh, before we came here, I thought Western Australia was still part of Australia. So um, as I said, I think it's crucial that we take advantage of our unique position on commodities and then we use that revenue um, wisely. And, and obviously we'll talk about NDIS, et cetera, and education and health. Um, and there's some really good measures on health here, particularly around Medicare um, and more access to Medicare, tripling, tripling to GPs. Um, that, is, that is a very big constraint in the, it, it currently and, and coming out of the pandemic. And so that's, that's warranted. So you have to be able to pay for those things. Again, structural deficit, you need to be able to, to use our unique position to do that. So I think, and that is for all Australians, those resources are for Australians. So um, I won't get into the, to the politics on that, but I think it's reasonable that you know, we do charge super profits in, in these conditions. And staying on the resources front, there is $2 billion for investment in hydrogen. What opportunities lie here for Australia? Yeah, I think this is a it's a really good initiative. Um, if you think we we spend a lot of time on electrification of our system, which is seventeen or so percent of of emissions, but some of the big emission reduction um, areas are things like steel production, ammonia production. They are the things that are very difficult to to resolve at the moment. And one one of the solutions there, or potential solutions, is hydrogen. Um, so I think it, it is very good that we are looking at hydrogen. Um, you. If you're going to solve the energy transition, you need to have a number of bets in a number of places. Um, and so I think the hydrogen scheme is a, is a, is a welcome introduction. And, and if it can resolve and if we can become you know, green steel providers, green ammonia providers through hydrogen, um, we will lead the, the world on that and it'll add a lot to our productivity. So um, yeah, very big support of the hydrogen project. What's in this budget for small to medium businesses? The instant asset write-off has been scaled back after its expansion during the pandemic and there are incentives for small business to electrify and become energy efficient. Yeah, there's a, there's a few, a bit of tinkering around the edges there. I mean, they are they're welcome, particularly on the electrification, um, $20,000, um, up to $20,000 deduction. So that is, and, and the extension of the, the write-off um, out to 2024 is, is wanted, although it has been reduced from the 50 million turnover over to a 10 million turnover threshold. So there are packages in there. Um, overall, I guess there isn't a lot of incentive there for business. And so um, we would obviously like to see you know, more incentive, particularly on the innovation front. Um, but it was welcome at least that the, that the tax incentive was, uh, the tax write-off was extended, which was, it was largely thought was going to be uh, lost. Um, the carry, lost carryback rules have been taken out, which again is a bit disappointing um, as that is a sort of globally um, acknowledged sort of regime. And so it would have been good to see that. But, Overall, not a lot in there for business incentive, to be honest. So do you think the government should have been more ambitious this time around in tackling some of the structural problems in the budget? It would have been nice, but I think that's not politically um, savvy given um, given the conditions we're in. Um, we are running into a potential. So the surplus, you know, obviously is a positive, and as we've said, we are running into a, a longer medium-term 2% structural deficit. And there needs to be serious tax reform. And, and I would fully support what Bess has said. Uh, over 50% of our taxes come from income tax, which is globally very high. We need to broaden the tax base whilst also obviously supporting low income holders. So um, until we get decent tax reform on that basis, I think we're going to have a, a large issue on structural reform. Um, and this political cycle is really not going to help that. But you know, we would really support another look at tax reform and, and, and trying to broaden the tax base, which also adds to productivity, adds the ability to people go out there and, and work harder and, and, and generate more uh, disposable income. So again, yeah, we, we would call for 
a, a rethink re about um, structural reform um, and hopefully in the next budget we might see some, some initiatives. I do want to come to productivity in a moment, but are you concerned at all about the interest on debt bill or is the rapid growth of the NDIS a bigger issue? Well, I think they're very much interlinked because the NDIS is probably the main contributor to, or one of the main contributors to the debt bill. So clearly the debt bill needs to be um, needs to be addressed and that's through structural reform. As I said, we're running into structural deficits of 2%. So that bill is not going to go south um, quickly. Obviously, if you can grow the economy through productivity, you can start to generate more revenue and, and reduce that, that bill. But NDIS is definitely... Um, something that's really clear on the radar. Uh, we, we do a lot of work in that space. And, and, and I think, I mean, if you think about Australians have highly supported this initiative. We all support the fact that we need a strong NDIS. Um, but what we see on the ground is um, inefficiencies in, in the way it's operating. Clearly, Bill Shorten's going to come up with reforms, but there's clearly inefficiencies. There's clearly issues with the plan, the plans that are put in place. So the longer plans discussed would be assist on that. And just the speed with which those plans are implemented. A lot of operators are you know, struggling on the basis of the predictability of those plans and, and et cetera. And there are substantial, if, if we're honest with ourselves, there's substantial um, I guess, rorting of the system in terms of overcharging, et cetera. Um, and so any measures that can help that really are beneficial because really we want our tax money going to where it's needed. And so I think that is probably the main priority of the government. So Bill Shorten has found himself in the most important portfolio uh, probably going forward in the next 12 months. And they've acknowledged that it's unsustainable and that they do need to address some of the challenges within that. Um, what are clients telling you? I know the budget isn't that old yet, but what are they telling you about current trading conditions and how the budget addresses some of their concerns or not? Yes. Well, it's obviously early days on the budget, but um, uh, clearly, uh, I, I guess the pleasing, uh, if you go back to six, 12 months ago, pleasingly, business conditions are still quite good. Now, there's obviously sectors like the construction sector and the consumer sector that are under pressure, but overall, business conditions aren't, aren't too bad. The surveys are showing that. Um, so overall, you know, it's, it's pleasing to see where the businesses are operating. Clearly, as, as Besser mentioned, there are some forward-looking indicators that are looking a little, a little bit um, weak. Um, forward orders are looking weak. Um, CapEx decisions are looking weak. And, and that will play in, I guess, in the next six to 12 months with that reduction in growth to, to 1.5 or 1.25, if you believe the RBA. Um, so I think um, business conditions are still strong, but um, clearly consumer demand is going to reduce. I mean, the retail sales numbers yesterday were, were, were quite low, so you know, second quarter down. So I would have thought businesses are looking forward to, um, to lower consumer um, spending, et cetera. Labor, if you think about the last budget, labor has been the key issue for, for businesses. It is still tight, but as Bess has mentioned, we are starting to see that loosen. And we are starting to see some of the pressure of, of, of wage growth coming off. So clearly wage growth is going to increase with the, with the, the award changes, et cetera, coming in place. But on the ground, we are started seeing you know, a softening, softening of, the, of the wage increases that we have seen. And in the private sector, you know, some of the wage increases have been 10, 20 percent. Um, so that is, that is a pleasing uh, part for, for businesses. Um, but still, it is a challenging environment. And, and clearly, you know, I think 24 will be slightly harder than 23. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that because in the budget, it says that wages growth will reach 4 percent next mm. year. But you're saying that for a lot of private businesses, they've already seen wages growth. The big increases come already. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in non-award industries, those increases came through at least 12 to 18 months ago. And we saw some significant increases. I mean, the, the other side to the migration, as Bessa mentioned, 
is that a lot of that is skilled migrants. And in some sectors, services sectors, professional services, et cetera, there was a significant shortage during the pandemic. And so that has been pleasing and, and that has, is starting to, 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 to flow through um, and, and ease wage pressure, but also you know, start to fill some of those uh, skills gaps. Um, not to say that in some sectors it's very tight. Aged care is an example, extremely tight labor market. The, the $11 billion, the 15% um, uh, funding for that is, is warranted and, and, and welcomed. Um, but the, the challenge will be how do we actually find those people? Um, because you know, there, there's, there's pressure on those people. So it will contribute to more labor in that, in that market, but you know, is there enough people? And, and that's, that's the unknown. So um, labor is still a key one. Input costs uh, have come, have moderated. If you look at freight, freight's back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, if you look at you know um, other input costs, apart from obviously power is still is still strong, but a lot of the input costs have come off. Even gas is that you know it's come down significantly on the global markets, not necessarily in Australia. So a lot of those things are are coming down. But I think businesses will be looking forward to how are consumers going to react to the budget, to interest rate rises. And, and as Bessa mentioned, there is still a cliff of mortgage holders who will dampen demand. And so I, I, I tend to, to, to put more reliance on the RBA's growth numbers, which are only 25 basis points away than, than Treasury's yesterday, just because I think there is a, there, there is a, a reckoning, I guess, for a lot of people in terms of consumer spending, and, and it could come off quite rapidly in the next six to 12 months. And that's why you think that growth comes off pretty quickly next year at just 1.5% because of those tighter consumer Correct. conditions. And, and, and the RBA is more like 1.25. So I think the risk on that 1.5 is probably more to the downside. Um, that being said, the Australian economy has been extremely resilient. And you, you talk about the is, the, is this package, is this stimulus inflationary? Uh, I think history tells us that when people have more afford, uh, disposable income, we saw that during the pandemic, and even before that, even small amounts of disposable income, we have tended to spend it. I mean, one of the one of the shining lights in the latest consumer numbers was eating out was out up one point five percent. So we are we do have a strong propensity to spend the money. So I, I do believe it will add to inflation. Will it be a game changer on interest rates? No, there are more factors playing out than that. But um, but it will definitely play out in the next six to twelve months as potentially inflationary. But given that you know growth is going to be under pressure, it's probably not the worst thing in the world. There's certainly a dichotomy coming through in terms of household spending growth, where those uh, sectors of retail spending that are connected to the housing market. Uh, you're seeing a greater pullback, whereas those sectors that are non-housing related, like spending on fishing or mm. camping or recreational goods or hospitality, they're holding up um, a little bit better. But, you know, when you put it all together in terms of aggregate terms, we are seeing that slowdown in housing spending. Just to pick up on the confidence um, numbers around businesses and consumers, um, for quite a while now, since early last year, we have been in a situation where consumers are very downbeat about current economic conditions and about the outlook, but business business confidence has been pretty resilient. In fact, the latest numbers really just showing neutral settings in terms of confidence for, for businesses. And, and as Paul mentioned, uh, businesses still can see conditions as pretty buoyant. Um, I, I think the rate outlook will play in the minds of businesses. Some businesses are waiting for that peak and that pause to come through or to be convinced of it for, for rates uh, before they move forward. Um, other businesses are waiting for opportunities to emerge, potentially from um, slower economic activity and what that might 
might mean for businesses. And then just on the wages growth, what we are hearing from our business customers is that um, businesses where possible are trying to make use of bonus payments or retention payments so that you don't have that ongoing cost um, applied to wage levels. And also there's greater outsourcing now um, to uh, offshore uh, labour, um, particularly India and particularly Philippines, that, that has returned. And then you've got that really strong improvement coming through in net international migration, which is obviously helping in terms of improving labour supply. So do you think that the unemployment rate is going to go higher than government forecasts and RBA forecasts as those tighter conditions take hold? Uh, I mean, as, as Bess has said, the labour market has been very resilient. Yeah. Um, I, because you probably would have expected to see some impact on the labour market by now. You you would have, but I guess it's been it's been a very very tight labour market, and and I don't think that's. I mean, there's obviously a large amount of net migration, but we're coming from a low base in terms of during pandemic, and there's still there are still shortages in some areas. So, um, will unemployment is is it the risk to the upside? I think if if the mortgage cliff does play out and there's a, there's a very big downturn in consumer spending, then clearly yes, un unemployment would. Um, would be at risk. Um, there, you have seen some some levels of, of distress and, and redundancies across some sectors. I mean, the construction sector is clearly facing a lot of pressure at the moment, as we still talk about housing. Same with the uh, consumer sector. There's been a large number of insolvencies in that space. Um, but we're just not seeing, as I said, the business conditions are still holding up. So I'm, I don't think there's too much risk on unemployment, but it depend, really depends on how interest rates bite into, I guess, the consumers. And there's two factors that there's two factors that I also like to stress. And one is it actually takes time for employment to respond to what's happening in economic activity. If we think about the big, one of the biggest issues for businesses last year was actually getting labour. They were desperate to get labour and in many instances hired, you know, the labour that wasn't the right type of labour. So businesses aren't going to be letting go of staff very quickly. They'll want to be certain that, you know, demand for their goods and services are slowing and, you know, they might need to uh, reduce labour as a result. The other um, big factor is that in January, when the Bureau of Statistics interviewed um, uh, the working age population as part of its survey, there was a high share of people that said, look, we're unemployed, but we've actually got a job to go to. Mm -hmm. And we've got a job to go to in a month or, or two months' time. And so we're still seeing, I think, the outcome of those responses flow through to February and March. And so, yes, we're at 3.5%, just off the record low of 3.4%. But given what the forward-looking indicators are telling us, we should see the unemployment rate start to gradually move higher. Now, the budget's forecast of 4.5%, or drifting to a peak of 4.5% um, for 24-25, where it then stays at, uh, and, and the RBA also has 4.5% or drifting up towards 24, 25. And now, just to put that number in perspective, the rate of unemployment that's consistent with full employment is 4%. Yeah. Um, so that's still a pretty low unemployment rate relative to history. And so while conditions are easing in the labour market, they're really just moving from, you know, drum tight um, to tight. Uh, and uh, it's not going to look a lot I don't think it's going to look a lot easier in terms of hiring labour in, in a hurry or it's not going to feel that way given that the unemployment rate is below full employment. Mm. Let's uh, bring in some questions from the audience now. Thank you so much for sending them in. Paul, maybe this one should be directed at you. Should business be worried that we're still staring down the barrel of a potential recession? 
Um, as Bessa mentioned, business is always trying to look forward and understand how their their customers are going to um, to deal with the the, the economic conditions. Um, and and I think one thing that is currently in their minds is that that the 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 outlook is much shortened. So you know it's very much. Uh, less predictable than, than maybe in the past in terms of how, how the, their customers are treating. I mean, what we are seeing is that customers are holding up. So in a lot of industries, I mean, obviously there are pockets, as I mentioned, but a lot of industries, customers are, are buying, uh, consumers are buying, um, and, and conditions aren't bad. One thing on, that, on the um, labour side too, I think given how tight labour's been, a lot of businesses have looked to how do we improve our processes, our technology. Um, you know, ChatGPT is obviously um, the current um, theme in the market, but how, how do we improve our processes? How do we get more um, productivity out of our workforce? And so some of those measures, um, whilst incremental, will, will add to that, to that productivity and, and flow through hopefully to, to reduce the reliance on labour. Um, but clearly, you know, clearly businesses are, I guess, as they are optimistic and, and pessimistic in sort of equal numbers at the moment, but I think they are, you know, just cautious and, and given those the CapEx numbers and the Ford order numbers are, are good predictors of businesses looking forward and saying, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit unpredictable, therefore I'm not going to expand rapidly in, in the next six to 12 months. So I think that's pretty clear. And look, I think the population growth numbers are really critical. If we have a look at household spending growth, if we have a look at GDP growth forecasts by the Reserve Bank, which were just published recently um, over the next few quarters, uh, they look a lot better due to people. If we actually adjust those numbers on per capita terms, so for example, if we try and um, decipher what the Reserve Bank's very own forecasts are in terms of GDP per capita, you're getting a recession in mm. per capita terms. So it's people that are, make, are helping make the economy a lot more resilient. Now, to get a recession, uh, well, the, well, the technical definition of recession, it's not in per capita terms. It's a, a contraction in GDP activity uh, for two or more quarters. Um, now, I think it's a very narrow path. I think the governor acknowledges it's a narrow path. I think the federal budget numbers um, suggest it's a narrow path and we think it's a narrow path. It's a narrow path because you've still got inflation well above the target ban. Yes, inflation is moderating now, but it's still elevated. There's still ris risks around that moderation and how quickly you can come back to the target ban. And so the challenge is bringing down inflation without leading to a recession. Now, there's some central bank heads like the US Federal Reserve head, Jeremy Powell, um, who's talking tough and walking tough and seems quite prepared to generate a downturn in order to bring down inflation. Whereas I think in Australia, we, you know, uh, I think the, the governor of the Reserve Bank is trying to, uh, I guess, tread that more delicate tightrope. If I can also just mention that in financial markets, we also look at um, the yield curve spread. So we look at 10-year bond yields against two-year bond yields, and we have a look at that spread. And in the US, that spread is deeply negative and has been deeply negative for an extended time. It's a very good indicator of whether recession's coming. If you go back all the way to the 1960s, usually when that's uh, in contraction territory for an extended time, a recession follows within the next 12 to 18 months. So recession is widely anticipated uh, in the US. But if you have a look at that spread in Australia, that's still positive. So markets aren't yet convinced that we will see a recession in Australia. And as I said, it's a narrow path.
Yeah, so if the US goes into recession, it doesn't automatically mean that Australia will follow? No, it certainly doesn't mean um, that Australia will certainly follow. But bear in mind that the US economy is the world's largest economy. Uh, there are impacts on trade. Uh, there are impacts on confidence. There are impacts through um, financial markets, which are very much international and intercorrelated. Um, so the US entering a downturn would have implications for global growth and that would have implications for Australia. But on the flip side, China has reopened since December. Uh, economic activity is bouncing back. That's our closest trading partner. Uh, and so, um, uh, and, and, and also, I guess, um, there is the possibility that rate cuts might emerge in 2024. Mm. Uh, and in the United States, that might might emerge a lot sooner. Paul, earlier you were talking about artificial intelligence and the opportunities that it can present for business. Did you see a lot or anything in the budget last night that would give business um, productivity gains? Um, to be honest, there wasn't a lot. Obviously, small tinkering around the the small the small business, the tax write offs, etc., as we've mentioned. But they are they are small, Vicky. Um, I think we've been calling for a long time that the R and D the R and D incentive wasn't mentioned in the budget, which is, I guess, a positive. And since it wasn't touched, um, that's a very crucial part of our innovation um, in our economy. But we would definitely look to encourage more of those sort of incentives. If you look at the countries like the US and countries like Israel, um, they have much more developed schemes in that place. And if we are going to come out of a structural deficit, we do need to work on productivity. We need to get more out of out of revenue. Um, and so it was a bit um, disappointing pointing that we're not seeing some a clear innovation agenda clearly there's there's a lot in the in the ESG transition so there's a lot of innovation there but they are long-term plays and they're more likely not to return productivity gains quickly as you will get with some some schemes and, and people on the ground you know, using those schemes to um, to develop new products and innovations innovation though as you know comes really from small incremental changes within within people and companies and so I think Whilst the government hasn't really done anything to that front, the tight labour markets is really is a is a is a um, is is pushing businesses to really innovate and to to develop new technologies and and develop new processes that increase productivity. And some of the changes around the single touch payroll and things like that, and and also the the payment of super every every month, um, they are they are positives obviously for for people, but they also positive for business. It's it's an easier compliance regime um, and enables them to manage their cash flow a little bit better. So further to the point that you made there, another question from the audience. With ESG gaining momentum better, where does Australia sit with its policy around climate change? Do we need more funding from the government in the climate technology space? Look, I think you've got to applaud this government in that they've really changed the dial on net, net energy transition and they've moved the dial in the right direction. Um, I recently... Uh, attended an event where the new chair of the Superbauer Institute, Rob S Rod Sims, spoke. And he made the very strong point that we could repeat the mining investment boom with the green transition boom um, without the costs attached to it. Remember the unwinding of the mining investment boom and some of the costs that went with it. Um, if we seize this opportunity, because, you know, Australia is a lucky country in that the sun and the wind um, is you know is better than anywhere abundant. in the world. It's abundant, um, and not just that. It's you know the sun shines at the right time, the wind blows in the right um, knots, or whatever it might 
be the case to, to get that mix correct. Uh, but we've really got to seize that opportunity. And I think there's some inroads made in terms of seizing this opportunity. But then if you have a look at the, the United States, they've got the Inflation Reduction Act um, that is encouraging investment into the green transition in the US. The Middle East is um, close behind trying to, you know, be a part of that process. So uh, we haven't seen a lot in the last decade. Um, this government is trying to catch up. Uh, and so there is that risk that, you know, perhaps the catch up is too great. Did you have anything? Yeah, to add to that? and it's interesting. I mean, one of the issues is we do need a lot more infrastructure, and 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 a lot of that is in the energy transition. A lot of it is. If you look at Snowy 2.0, obviously it's got significant challenges, and you'd get that with any large infrastructure projects. Also, state governments' budgets are are very poor at the moment, and so I don't think you're going to see a lot of new infrastructure projects funded through the state government. So the private sector will need to step up. The encouraging part to that is obviously there's more money going into super another. 50 basis points into super. There is a lot of money available for that and the private sector needs to step up um, and, and do those projects. But also we need to have better, you know, less red tape, less, less delays and more labor, I guess more skilled labor into those sectors to be able to build the infrastructure that's required. My concern would be that we are trying to transition. Um, well, we've got to get the transition right. If we if we transition too quickly and come out and, and reduce um, our available power, then that will then put put a lot of these projects back. So that's where the gas mix comes in, really, and transitioning from from gas to to renewables is a key part of that whole program. But we need to get the mix right. But we all we really need to get you know the, out of the way of people building good infrastructure projects and getting them on time and and, and hopefully to budget. Uh, another question from the audience. Labelled as the friendly debt, Australia's HEX help debt has topped $74 billion. Does this level of debt have negative implications for the Australian economy? What's the expectation that this debt will be paid back? This has become a hot topic recently because of indexation and the high inflation rate. Yeah, that's right. One, one of the consequences of elevated inflation is that um, the, the HEX debt is increasing. Uh, look, I, I think um, just picking up on Paul's thread, which I think is related to this, is you know when we think about R and D and we think about improvements to innovation, we we think about improvements to productivity. It also really ties up with the education sector, mm -hmm. and and Hex obviously feeds into that education sector. Um, now I was at a sporting match just the other day, uh, and uh, you know the the mum on the sideline said, "Well, I'm going to send my son to Germany to get." Um, free education in you know for university because the hex debt here will be too great for him. Um, so I, I guess I worry about our younger generation and the costs um, that are falling on them, particularly around the housing challenges, uh, particularly around uh, real wages. Wages adjusted for inflation, they they're contracting by the most on record now. Encouragingly. Uh, in the budget forecasts, uh, the government does predict a return to growth for real wages, but also again that that income mix, um, that over reliance on income tax that um, really applies at a much lower multiple of average earnings income compared to other OECD countries. Mm. Are we going to be able to to keep our smartest and brightest and youngest people here? probably have time for one more audience question. Paul, I'll direct this at you. What sectors will see potential positive and negative effects from this budget? Um, well, obviously anyone who's facing some of the government stimulus sectors, so aged care, um, 
that's positive, obviously, with some funding for aged care. Uh, as long as we haven't seen exactly how that money is going to be reimbursed, the, the $11 billion of increased wage costs to operators, and our concern would be there will be some shortfalls. And anyone who knows anything about that industry, 60 to 70% of operators are making losses. This is a crucial sector. So, um, but obviously, if that's that's a positive. Anyone who's servicing you know, energy transition, so energy efficient, obviously equipment is obviously a positive. Um, the defence you know, service sector is going to obviously do do well out of that. Um, in terms of the negative sectors, really, um, you know, gas and and the consumer sector is, I guess, still going to be under a lot of pressure because of the. Um, because of inflationary fears and, and the slowdown in, in retail spending. Um, the construction sector, again, we have seen, obviously we've seen a fair bit of distress. Most of that's been around fixed price contracts um, running off and causing cash flow issues. We are going to now transition into a, a re reduction in volumes. I think new housing starts are going to be down 50,000, which is then going to require operators to then reduce their fixed cost base. So I think you'll see a second wave of challenges in that sector. And again, um, Nothing in this budget is going to resolve that apart from um, um, putting more pressure, I guess, on, on input costs. So um, um, overall, I mean, there, there aren't really too many winners and losers. I think mostly the inflationary outlook and what interest rates will do is the main game in town. And um, anything the government can do to bring down rates um, and, and maintain um, consumer spending will obviously help business. So that's, that's I guess, and, and I think... As I said at the start, this is a cautious budget, and and I think they're on the right track in that regards. But there's a lot a lot of interplay to go out in the next six months, twelve months. So that'll be interesting to see really where the interest rate cycle finishes. Bessa, uh, I'd agree with that. Look, I think they made um, really good inroads with improving the budget bottom line uh, over the forward years, including for 2022-23. Um, yes, we returned to a deficit in 23-24, but it's much smaller than what was predicted in the past. And, and that just puts um, the government's bottom line in a, in a stronger position. I agree with Paul. The main game in town is what is going to happen with interest rates and then what does that mean for cost of living expenses. And certainly um, Jim Chalmers tried to target that spending um, uh, with a laser focus, um, you know, applying that spending to the most vulnerable households, which includes single parents, includes those on um, job seeker. Uh, but ultimately, it is really hard to give spending and reduce inflationary uh, inflationary pressures at the same time because they're incompatible. Um, so uh, there is that risk to greater inflationary pressures, but it will depend on a whole range of factors, including what's happening in the global economy, what's happening with the labour market, what's happening with wages, what's happening with housing, and that's all got to come together. A very delicate balancing act. Bessa Dita and Paul Gooley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to our special federal budget episode. We hope you enjoyed a deep dive into what the budget spending allocation means for restoring the Australian economy. My name is Rebecca Archer, and if you liked this podcast and would like to hear more from the series, you can subscribe to Navigating the New Normal podcast by Grant Thornton Australia on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Spotify.